When I gave my life to the Lord, I was a stripper, and I um, made a decision to completely change my life. I had no idea where to go to church, what to do, how to dress, and one day I was sitting out at a coffee shop, and some girls were walking around, and they were telling everybody about their church. Well, I was so excited. I thought, this is going to be it. This is going to tell me where I can go. Maybe they'll be my friends. And instead, um, they took one look at me and the way I was dressed and how I looked and gave me a dirty look and passed me over. I was going into fourth grade, um, and that summer my parents sat me down and told me that uh, they were getting a divorce. And uh, I remember being blown away by that. And then uh, on top of that, we showed up at church over the next few weeks and I just remember feeling this, uh, this difference there that we weren't <laughs> supposed to be there. Like, you know, we had divorce slapped around uh, our chest. And for me, it, it made me feel like there was something wrong with me. I trusted Christ when I was in high school. Um, decided to go to Bible college so I could figure out uh, some of the answers to my questions as far as the Bible and God and making that work practically. During my senior year, I really felt like instead of getting answers and getting help with some of my questions, I got rejected uh, in so much as even the college president uh, calling me out in one of the classes and basically saying, if you just, you know, if you, you still have questions this late in the game, you just don't get it. I grew up in a church for 20 years, and when I went to college, I made a few mistakes and got pregnant out of wedlock. I knew there would be trouble, I knew there would be gossip but I never expected a phone call from the pastor asking me to resign my membership. Well, for the first time in my life, I was really coming back to God. I was trying to, to really reconnect with Him, and my life was a mess. I was going through a divorce, I was in debt, I didn't have any friends, and so I actually wrote a letter to a friend of mine that I knew from high school. I knew that she was a pretty strong Christian, and um, I thought maybe we could start up a friendship. So I sent her a letter, and a couple weeks later, I, I got a package back in the mail, and. I opened it up, and there was no letter. It was just a pamphlet on why divorce is a sin. Well, I struggled with uh, same-sex attraction all my life, and uh, being a Christian and brought up in a Christian home, Christian school, I had difficulties dealing with it, and uh, went to my pastor because I knew there was some kind of issue with me and I had some problems, and instead of receiving uh, spiritual guidance, I received, uh, you know, hatred and I was condemned, and uh, I was asked to leave the church. There came a point in my marriage where things got really rocky. I made a decision to trust the people at the church and start telling them about what was happening, um, and I expected them to, to try and understand. I expected them to help to accept us broken like we were, but instead they judged us, they judged me, they blamed me. It was definitely not okay to not be okay. I was five years old. I was going to Sunday school, and I seen a statue of Jesus, and I knew my grandmother would really like it, so I took it from the church and gave it to my grandmother. The next Sunday, whenever I went back to church, the preacher took me aside and told me I was going to go to hell for stealing. And uh, it really scared me, and that really turned me off, and I asked my mom if I had to go to church anymore, and she said not if I didn't want to. So I stayed away from church for 31 years and I pretty much went to hell for the next 31 years. 
It made me feel rejected. I was totally crushed. To this day, it affects my family. What good did that do anybody? God forgave me, but the church couldn't. I wish you would have treated me like a brother instead of a piece of garbage. We need to be examples and not tell people what they have to do and what they should do, but just show them what we do. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt judged, condemned by a friend and, and had the sense of, oh, this is not the way this is supposed to be? A few weeks ago, we talked about hypocrisy, that, that the most common thing people say about why they don't go to church is because church is full of hypocrites, right? Um, that, that's the thing that we hear all the time. I think the most common theme that people in our culture know about Christianity is that we're not supposed to judge, right? We hear it all the time. Who are you to judge where I go? Who are you to judge what I do? Who are you to judge where I spend my money, how I parent my kids or treat my spouse? Who are you to judge what I do with my body, what I put into my body, who I sleep with? Who are you to judge if I decide to identify as a man or a woman? Who are you to judge right and wrong in my life? Those questions that that say, who are you to judge? Where's that attitude come from? Is that concept even in Scripture? That's what we're taking a look at today. Jesus is preaching to a large group of people on the hillside near the Sea of Galilee, and he's been teaching revolutionary concepts about what a true relationship with Jesus looks like. Over and over again, he said, it's your heart that matters. It's your heart that matters. It's not about the externals. It's not about what the religious leaders say. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. He wants to surgically repair how you treat others. He wants to do surgery uh, that, that will take care of that issue on how we respond to him. He wants to do a transplant on that cold, dead center of your body and bring it to life, to bring warmth and color back to your spirit. Jesus has been talking about being authentic, about not being a hypocrite. He's been talking about treasuring eternal things. He's been talking about trusting God for all your needs. And at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, he says this, Judge not, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out out of your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what's holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus says, judge not. Everybody knows that scripture and uses it as a weapon to tell everybody else to just shut up and stop disagreeing with whatever it is that they're doing. Most people don't know, though, how that that concept fits in with the rest of scripture. Are we as Christians never supposed to judge anything? That's not the case. 
That's, we know that's, that that's not the case. We'll get there in a little bit. But look, let's talk about what Jesus says first. When Jesus says, judge not, the context makes it clear that the thing that he's condemning is the disposition, one commentator says, the disposition uh, to look unfavorably on the character and actions of others, which leads invariably to pronouncing of rash, unjust, and unlovely judgments upon them. Understand what he's not talking about. He's not talking about a judge in a courtroom, that you're not ever supposed to uh, have a judge in a courtroom. That he's not talking about the discernment issue, about determining whether you think that North Carolina or Gonzaga is the better team, or discerning what's the best entree to choose at a buffet. Jesus is talking about having a harsh, critical spirit. Uh, I, love, I love reading scripture from different versions of the Bible because different translations expose different kinds of things. One of my favorite versions, one of my favorite translations is called the Amplified Bible. The reason I like it so much is because what it does in the translation is it takes the original language, Greek or, or Aramaic in the, in the New Testament, and words that have multiple meanings or nuances it actually integrates them into the English translation using multiple words. Look at these five verses from Matthew 7 from the Amplified Version, and what you'll see is things in brackets and in parentheses that help explain that term that's there in the, in the original language. Do not judge and criticize and condemn others unfairly with an attitude of self-righteous superiority as though assuming the office of a judge so that you will not be judged unfairly. For just as you hypocritically judge others when you are, are sinful and unrepentant, so you will be judged. And in accordance with your standard of measure used to pass out judgment, judgment will be measured to you. Why do you look at the insignificant speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice and acknowledge the egregious log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye? When there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, play actor, pretender, first get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I love that because it fleshes out for us what Jesus is talking about there. It's not just about making a judgment about anything. It's about having this harsh, judgmental, critical attitude. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to not be characterized by a self-righteous spirit. Followers of Jesus are not characterized by a self-righteous spirit. Self-righteousness is that smug assurance that we have life and religion and our relationship with God all figured out, and that it's all good. It's a confidence in the system of religion that we've created. If you sense that, that spirit of self-righteousness in yourself, it's probably a sign that your heart is dead or that it's dying. That self-righteousness causes us to judge others and to say, boy, I'm, not glad. I, I'm glad I'm not like that person. I'm so much better than that person. Why is it that we judge? Why is it that we do that? I, uh, I think sometimes we compare ourselves because we, we want to prove that we're better. We think that we're as good as or, or better than the people around us. We think that if we can convince others or ourselves that somebody else is bad, that that in turn will make us look good. Sometimes I think that we judge others 
simply because we're insecure. We don't have confidence that the, that the life that we're living as a follower of Jesus is right. And so out of that insecurity, we transfer that to other people and judge and say, oh, they're, they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. That's a bad decision. That insecurity causes us to do that. Sometimes I think we judge others because our own sin in our own lives just makes us angry. We feel like we've got this thing in our life that we can't get rid of. And the Holy Spirit convicts, but we never really make the change. And that anger in us causes us to lash out at the people around us. It causes us to to look at people who have that same sin that we struggle with and say, boy, they're a mess. They can't get that right to, to try and protect us protect our secrets, but it's that anger in us that causes us to do it. Sometimes, sometimes we somehow believe that God has commissioned us to determine whether a person's actions or attitudes honor him and to communicate that to everyone that we can. We we think that God has put us in place as uh, as, as his tool to convict everyone else of the sin in their, in their lives. We, sometimes I even think beyond that, we think that maybe we are God and that we have the ability to choose. That person's good, that person's bad, that person's going to heaven, that person's going to hell. It couldn't be more wrong. We judge all kinds of things about other people, if you think about it. We judge what they look like. We judge what they wear. We judge their motives. We judge the look in their eyes and how they respond to us. We judge how they carry themselves. We judge their relationship with Jesus. We judge their relationship with their husband or wife or their kids. We judge their effectiveness in their job and whether or not they honor God. Hear what the message says. The message translation of this, or the version of it, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. That, that, that followers of Jesus are not characterized by a self-righteous spirit. For all of us, we've got to get a hold of that because that reflects on us, it ultimately reflects on Jesus himself. If we're going to be serious about following Jesus, we've got to look first at ourselves and take inventory of what's going on in our lives. Followers of Jesus look first at themselves. The key is judging ourselves, recognizing our own sin, repenting and throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. Jesus died. Jesus went to the cross so that we could come to him with repentant hearts and be made whole. Jesus said in in verse 2 of chapter 7, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Does that scare anybody? That's sobering. The, The measure with which we judge will be the measure that God uses on us. What if the lack of grace we showed to the checkout person at Meyer determined the attitude of every Meyer employee? What if the way that we drove determined the way every other driver drove? What if the way that we dealt with telephone solicitors determined how tech support dealt with us when we called and had a question? 
What if the grace with, which Jesus has shown us becomes the standard for the way that we treat everyone else in our lives? Jesus uses an illustration there to, to amplify this, to help us understand it. Uh, talking about a speck and a moat. He says, if, he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but, don't note, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I need a volunteer. Anybody, you don't have to do anything except just come up and stand up here. Yay, Tracy! Yay, Tracy. Everybody, this is Tracy. Say hi, Tracy. Tracy, are you wide awake? Okay. What I want to do is, this is my moat, all right? I, want to, I don't even know how to attach this to my eye, all right? But if I, want to, if I want to try and take something out of your eye, that's pretty dangerous, isn't it? It's, it, it do you understand what the illustration that Jesus uses? He says, you've got this big thing in your eye, and you're over here trying to pull out some sleep from Tracy's eye. That doesn't make any sense at all. All it's going to do is hurt her and hurt you in the process because you can't really see it. Give it up for Tracy. That's all I needed her for. We, it's easy for us to find specks in other people's lives and to speculate, right, on their motives, to speculate on their heart, to say we know exactly what's going on in them. And at the, at the same time, we've got this big log, this big plank, this big moat that's, that's in our own eye. I have a value that, that when I first came to North Point and sat down with the staff, I said, you guys got to understand that this is part of who I am. This is part of what I believe. Um, the, I, I use this all the time. The, the phrase is, assume the best. Assume the best in each other. Assume the best in our leaders. Assume the best in the people that you come in contact with. Uh, when, whenever somebody comes and says, oh, do you hear what Chris did? Uh, um, and that happens a lot, right? <laughs> um, my, 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 I, can tell you, I can tell you in advance what my, um, what my response will be. You know what? It's going to be to support Chris and to assume that whatever Chris did, he did for the right reasons with all the, the information that he had at that point in time. I'm always going to assume that he or Jake or Courtney or Amy or, or Jana or Sue, that they're doing the best that they can. I'm always going to assume the best. I'm going to assume that of our elders. I'm going to assume it of leaders who are here. I hope I assume it of the people that I come in contact with it at every level of the day. I want to assume the best rather than to assume the worst. Because what happens when I assume the worst, when I look at somebody and say, oh, I know, what, I know why they did that, that same measure is going to be used on me. If I second-guess what they do, what are they going to do? They're going to second-guess what I do. If, if I don't support them, if I pick apart the decisions that they make, they're going to pick apart the decisions I make. Assume the best. Why, why do we think that we've got to pick that speck out of somebody else's eye when we've got this big log in our own eyes? When I was in college, I discovered that I have what's called monooptic vision. What that means is I see out of one eye at a time. 
Um, my right eye sees things in a distance. My left eye sees things up close. And for decades, I just learned uh, how to deal with that. Um, I, I made adjustments in terms of how I drove. I made adjustments in terms of when I was in the classroom because one eye would focus on what was far away, one eye would focus on what was up close. And, and the result of that was that I didn't have, I had very little depth perception because in order to have depth perception, both eyes have to work together to kind of give you that 3D image. So everything um, typically looks kind of flat. Over the years, I, I learned how to compensate when I drove. I learned how to compensate, how to judge when a softball was hit to the outfield where I needed to go. I learned how to hit a racquetball that was going really, really fast. But the time came about, about five or six years ago when I needed bifocals. My eyes were getting old and I couldn't read stuff up close anymore. That, that left eye wasn't doing the up close thing. And so I got glasses. And when I got glasses, it, it corrected the vision in both eyes. What happened was that I had to learn everything all over again because all of a sudden I was seeing things in a way that I had never seen them before. I was seeing them. I was seeing with depth perception. I was seeing with dimension that I had never experienced before. And it was difficult because the world looked very different when both eyes were working together. If you have a log, if you have a plank in your eye, Understand that it hasn't just gotten huge in an instant. It's grown up over time. For me, the monooptic thing, uh, over the years as that progressed, my brain adjusted completely to the fact that this eye worked out there, this eye worked up, up here, and, and I never even thought about it at all. If you've, got, if you've got a plank in your eye, a log in your eye, you have years of buildup of brokenness, years of pain that has brought you to the place that you are to have that plank in your eye. You've learned to compensate for the hurt or the insecurity or the pain, and you've accepted it as normal. I thought everybody saw the way that, uh, that I did. I thought that that was normal. Believing it to be normal, you've developed a defensiveness for your disability. If you would ask my family, um, when they get concerned when I drive at night and I can only see stuff that's flat, my response is always, I can see just fine. Thank you very much. Um, when they're holding on to the car because they know that I can't. Do you understand that? We create the self-righteous spirit in our house, our self-righteous spirit in, uh, inside us because we take that plank that's there and we say, that's normal. That's, it's always been there. Everything's okay. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop judging. Stop condemning. Stop thinking that, that you're all that and a bag of chips spiritually. Get back. Get back to that humble spirit, that dependence on God. And let him worry about convincing and disciplining others. Does that mean that we're not supposed to judge at all? Not at all. That's not consistent with Scripture. Let me just throw some Scriptures up behind real quick. First John chapter 4, John says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. That's making judgment, right? First Corinthians chapter 5, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. And, and, and Paul is writing about this guy who's been sleeping with his stepmom, uh, who says that he's a follower of Jesus. 
Um, you were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Is that making judgment? Absolutely. Jesus said in John chapter 7, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus said to judge. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those in, is it not those inside the church whom you're supposed to judge? Scripture is plain that, we're, that we are called as followers of Jesus to make judgments. But what Jesus said is that we're not to do it with this harsh, critical spirit. We're not to have a spirit of condemnation. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. Verse 17 says something really interesting, though, and we miss it so much of the time. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Jesus didn't have a condemning spirit. Followers of Jesus have to be characterized by a spirit of compassion by spirit of compassion and not condemnation. How, how do you help other people come to know Jesus? Man, you pray for them. You ask legitimate questions. What's going on in your head? What's going on in your heart? And you come alongside them and build a relationship. You don't bring them to Jesus with condemnation. A lack of judgment will create opportunities to impact others with the grace of Jesus. Chris mentioned it with the journals. Uh, we, we have the sense that God has called us to impact 50,000 people in the next five years with the grace of Jesus. To impact 50,000 people in the next five years with the grace of Jesus. How do you do that? It's not with a condemning spirit, but with compassion, with coming alongside and showing others the grace that God has shown us through Jesus. So much of the time, we look at the people around us and we expect them to get uh, what it means to follow Jesus before they ever have. Uh, I don't know if you want to write this down. This is pretty profound, okay? The, uh, I, let me give you three two-word sentence, two sentences. Runners run, golfers golf, and sinners sin, right? Runners run, that's what they do. Golfers golf, that's what they do. Sinners sin, People who don't have a relationship don't have a reason to act as though they do have a relationship with Jesus. We can't judge someone for something that doesn't make any sense in the world to them. Jesus showed incredible compassion to sinners. Think about the, the woman that was caught in adultery. The Jewish leaders are trying to trap Jesus, and so they set up this deal. If you, if you, uh, if you go and, and look up this incident, you'll, you'll find that the Jewish leaders had to set it up because they bring this woman who's caught in adultery, bring her to the center of town, and bring her to Jesus and say, um, the, the, the Mosaic law says that this woman should be killed. But they knew that the Roman law said that the Jews couldn't kill anyone. They couldn't execute capital punishment without permission of Rome. So the Jewish leader said, what do you say? The Jewish law says that she should be killed. If Jesus says, go ahead and kill her, he's disobeying the Roman law. If he honors the Roman law and says, you know what, you can't kill her uh, without permission from Rome, he'd be in violation of the Jewish law. What did Jesus do? First of all, Jesus didn't answer. He just knelt down and started to write in the dirt. They said again, 
This woman's been caught in the very act of adultery. What do you do with her? Jesus is writing, and, and he just says, I think, very quietly, you know what? The person who's never sinned, go, go ahead and throw the first stone. We don't know what Jesus wrote, but it became clear that for all of the people who came, all of the mob who were there, whose hands were filled with stones, ready to convict and kill this woman, that they were convicted of their own sin. Jesus ultimately says to the woman, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, she says, they're gone. They're not here anymore. And Jesus says, you know what? I don't condemn you either, but go and don't sin anymore. Change the life that you've been living. Jesus, the compassion that Jesus showed for that woman in her humiliation, in, in her degradation, the compassion that Jesus showed was incredible for her. You think about Jesus' interaction with, with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, a woman that he wasn't even supposed to talk to because he was Jewish and she was Samaritan. The, the racial tension that was there was huge, as well as the gender gap that was there. And, and Jesus engages this woman in conversation and says, you know what, can you draw some water for me? And then later says, I've got water that's living water, water that if you drink it, you'll never have to drink again. This was a woman who, who was the town tramp. She'd slept with lots of guys. The guy that she was living with, she wasn't married to. And yet Jesus showed compassion in that relationship, reached out and built a relationship with her. With her. In John chapter 5, Jesus is, is walking by the pool of Bethesda, and there's this guy who's crippled. And, and, and Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? A, a guy who's, who's struggling, who's, who's caught by himself, who's hopeless. Jesus, with compassion, comes alongside of him and heals him. You know, if, 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 we want to, if we want to blow up and destroy and, and not do anything in the impacting 50,000 uh, in five years with the grace of Jesus, if, if we want to make sure that we don't do that at all, how can we do that? We can have this spirit of condemnation and judgment with the people around us. Understand that very few people get judged into life change, but lots of people get loved into life change. People who judge almost never help others, but people who help almost never judge. So the question is, are we trying to help or hurt the people who are around us? Do we want them to have that relationship with Jesus or not? Do we want to serve them or do we want to savage them? Do we want to beat them up? Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, not condemnation. Paul, in writing to the church at, at Ephesus, says, rather speaking the truth in love were to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Jesus. We need to speak the truth. We need to make good assessments and judgments, but we need to do it with the spirit of love. Uh, about six weeks ago, a woman named Norma McCorvey died in Dallas. I don't know if that name sounds familiar, if, you're, if your brain's kind of thinking, who's Norma McCorvey? Norma McCorvey is Jane Roe of the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. Um, I, this week, I, I read back through her story because I just thought it, it described for me so well what we're talking about right now. 
Norma McCorvey uh, was married at 16, had a baby uh, with, with her husband, was, a, was I think she would self-describe as being a horrible mom. Her, her, her mother tricked her into putting her daughter up for adoption because Norma McCorvey wasn't taking care of her. Um, by the time she was 21, Norma McCorvey had been pregnant two more times and had given both of those, well, one time had given the baby up for adoption. She was pregnant a third time before she was 21. And that's, that's the pregnancy that prompted the case for Roe v. Wade in 1973 that, that legalized abortion. Um, uh, Norma McCorvey was the face, she was the face of the abortion movement. And she worked as a marketing director for, uh, for an abortion clinic in Dallas called A Choice for Women. Um, if you remember back in the 90s, Flip Benham was the head of Operation Rescue, uh, an organization that, that, that was very pro-life. It, was, uh, it, it tried to do everything that it could to, to uh, stop abortions. And, and Flip Benham and Operation Rescue opened an office right next door to A Choice for Women in Dallas, Texas, right next door to it. Um, McCorvey saw Benham's group as vicious, mean-spirited, fire-breathing, sanctimonious, self-righteous, bigoted hypocrites. Those are her words. Um, Not long after they moved in, after Operation Rescue moved in, McCorvey stood outside outside her building smoking, and Benham sat down beside her. They They had sparred with each other in the press and on television, and Benham apologized for calling her names. He said to her, I saw my words drop into your heart and I know that they hurt you deeply. McCorvey was taken back. She excused herself, went back inside the building and says that she cried. She cried. On a particularly bad Saturday morning, more than 50 protesters from Operation Rescue were outside the clinic parking lot. The protests um, were more than annoyances. It was, it was a dangerous situation. It had been a few months since the last American abortion doctor had, had been murdered, and Norma McCorvey understood that she was as good as target as anyone in that conflict that was taking place. She wrote, I was terrified, and then almost like an angel, Flip Benham walked out. With a few quiet words to the protest leader, Flip Benham cleared the entire parking lot. When everyone was gone, he walked over and told Norma McCorvey a story. You know, Miss Norma, I used to be pro-choice, Benham said. When my wife found out that she was pregnant with our twins, I told her to have an abortion. The confession astounded McCorvey. If Flip was supposed to be my arch enemy, why was he giving me information that could prove damaging to his reputation? What Benham did was came with compassion alongside the person who was the face of everything that he disagreed with. But in that compassion, he built a relationship that ultimately led to Norma McCorvey coming to church and being baptized into Jesus, leaving uh, the abortion rights movement completely and and landing on a a pro-life side. Uh, it, It was an incredible example to me of what happens when we stop with the with the harsh, critical spirit and come alongside people and show the love of Jesus. Last thing I want to share just really quick is the last verse that's there in, uh, that, we, that we read today. Uh, verse 6. Don't, don't give dogs what's holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Um, what is that? How's that fit with everything that's there? You know, all of a sudden, he's, Jesus is talking about 
boats and specks and lumber and all kinds. And then he says, dogs and hogs. What's that about? Here's, here's Jesus' point. Followers of Jesus are wise and discerning. Followers of Jesus are wise and discerning. The dogs and the pigs that Jesus are talking about were not Gentiles. They were people who were opposed to God, opposed to his truth, who didn't grasp, who didn't get um, what it meant to have a relationship with God. And what Jesus said was, you know what? Don't be trying to share deep spiritual truth with people who don't have a relationship with God. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, um, if, if you've ever been on a farm, if you've ever seen a hog eat, man, they root and make a mess of everything. Anything that goes into their pen, into their pigsty, gets, it ends up being trampled, torn apart. Um, it's just a mess. And dogs in the day of Jesus were different than our cuddly little house, you know, domesticated pet kind of things. It wasn't that at all. Dogs were more like coyotes. They came in and, and they w- would grab stuff and they would, they would yank and tear and pull at them. They would be fierce and, and show their anger, bare their teeth, that kind of thing. Jesus said, when you share deep spiritual truth, when you try to have that kind of conversation with somebody who doesn't have a relationship with God, all that's going to happen is that, that it's going to get trampled on and that it's going to end up being used against you. It's going to be thrown back into your face. That's that, that sense of the dogs coming to, to defend and, and to tear into uh, the truth of God. So what are we supposed to do? Come alongside people. Um, let me, let me just, I said one last thing. Got one more thing I want to share. Okay. Uh, it's, it's in the app, and, uh, and you can go there. It's going to be on screen as well. Uh, Dr. Carol Peters Tanksley said uh, something that I thought was really worth sharing. If, if you've ever been beat up by the church, by Christians, and you're carrying that pain, um, there are five things that you need to know. The, the first is this. Condemning, accusing, manipulation, control, they're always the tools of Satan and not of God. That's not how God works. God doesn't work with a condemning, accusatory spirit, with manipulation, with control. Satan's name in Revelation is called the accuser. Paul said to the church in Rome, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's not from God. Second thing is this, Jesus will always accept you if you come to him. It doesn't matter what anybody else says, no matter how worthless someone has made you feel, Jesus will always accept you. Jesus said in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Third thing, Jesus will not leave you the same way that he found you. Isn't that good? Um, You know, if if you're struggling, if you're beat up, Jesus is not going to just come alongside you and just let you sit there. He's going to do his work in you and change you. Uh, 2 Corinthians says that we're being transformed from glory to glory. God will do his work in us. Fourth thing that's just helpful to know if you've been hurt, Christians who inflict wounds are usually not experiencing life transformation themselves. You've heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. It's true. Christians who are condemning, judgmental, probably not growing spiritually. God's probably not doing his work in them at that point in time. Fifth thing, helping another believer find healing or restoration involves both acceptance and change. 
coming alongside them and loving people right where they are, but helping them take the steps to change into the image of Jesus. Understand this. God is, God is going to judge. We don't need to. That's God's role. And ultimately, on the day of judgment, God is going to judge fairly and fiercely and with finality. God will, God will do it right. And he, he is the only one who has the ability to do that. We are completely dependent on Jesus for when we stand before God. We're completely dependent on Jesus. The people who are in our lives are desperate for a real relationship with Jesus as well. When's it going to happen? Here I am. There you are. Here I am, desperate for love, for truth. What are you going to do when you leave this building? Are you going to share with me what you've been learning here today? Or are you just going to bottle it up and pull it out next week for your friends? Now, when I say share, I'm not talking about every tactic you've used on me in the past, like judging my every move, telling me I'm a bad person, pointing fingers, giving me disgusting looks. <laughs> and my favorite is when you tell me that I'm lost. I don't even know what that means to be lost. Do you really think judging me is going to make me change? Would it make you change? Now, I, I know I'm a bad person. I've, I've done bad things, but I don't need you to tell me that. What I need is for you to pick me up when I fall down, to be there when I'm broken. Yes, there's, there's something missing in me. There's a void in my heart that I don't know how to fill. You have it. You have that thing that makes you whole. You know that person that I need to know. So I'm watching your every move. I'm watching where you go and what you say and do because I'm desperate for something real. I need something genuine to know that there's something more here than this. I mean, this, this can't be it, really. And I think you know that. Listen to me. I need you. I need you to be here for me. I need you to walk out right now, ready and willing to do whatever it takes it's, it may not be comfortable. It may not be easy. But I need you to show me love. No matter the cost, show me what unconditional love really looks like. Stop telling me about this God of yours and show me who he really is. Honestly, I'll probably resist you. I'll probably argue with you and laugh at you. I'll, you know, even when you fall, I'll probably call you a hypocrite. But don't give up on me. Please don't give up on me. So I'm gonna ask you, when's it gonna happen?